there's an enrichment when you have different backgrounds. And in our culture, we have a medicine wheel and it's broke down into four colors and those four quadrants and there's the color white, the color yellow, the color red and the color black. And what's that? what that does is it represents all the people of this world. And so for us, we always understand the value of, of diversity. We understand the value of generations. We understand the importance of carrying things on and that we are all tied to the land. Whether we forget those relationships, we can always go back to what our relationship was historically with the land, whether it was with this continent or not. You, you're always able to go back to what your histories were based on your culture and where you come from. It's time for conversations about our food and how it's grown on Farm to Table Talk with your host, Roger Wasson. Well, most everybody knows that the history of this continent included buffalo or bison all over, millions. I've heard 65, 70 million head. And some are saying that in a lot of ways, as we start talking about regenerative agriculture, it was better in many ways then. And when you look at the relationship with bison and buffalo and, and, and across this whole continent, that that was the case. Well, I have some with me today that's going to be talking uh, a little bit about this at EcoFarm coming up, and and I want to welcome uh, Latrice Totsi, and uh, Latrice, welcome to Farm to Table Talk. Thank you, Roger. Thanks for having me, and I'm excited to visit with you and answer some questions and just be a part of this program. Well, you're going to be a part of the EcoFarm program. And it seems appropriate that if we talk about regenerative farming, it's it's more than returning it back to the way land could be and how it can be better. And and I would suspect there's some people, and probably including yourself, that see an important role that bison has played in the past, way past in some cases, and could play again. Is there a case that can be made for bringing bison back? I mean, they exist now. There's bison ranches, uh, uh, and so you can see buffalo. But uh, what's the case for seeing that expand, and especially perhaps back on the uh, on the Indian reservations? You know, I think the the expansion of bringing buffalo or bison and my tribal language we call them iniwa ini back to tribal communities especially the buffalo nations where their cultures tie back to the buffalo and so what bringing them back isn't just for ecological services in many aspects it's bringing them back for the the, the cultural identity of of the where you come from and in, in, in the importance of the relationship that you have with these animals and the relationship that they have with the land. <clears throat> because in a lot of our teachings, we learn from the animals on management of land. We learn from animals on how to pick plants and just so in our stories, 
the animals always took pity on us because we as humans were pitiful in their eyes. And so now how I look at it, we're relearning from them. The research that I did for my master's degree was looking at what that relationship is with any when they return back to land, but looking at it through the soil lens, because I, the work that I do in agriculture it, with ranchers or any type of producer, what I tell them is when we're looking at the health of the land, if we don't look at what's below the ground or below the grass or below, you know, if we don't look at the soil health, then how are we really addressing the health of the land? And what do we know what those relationships are for grazing and soil health? So really looking at what those relationships are for buffalo because they have evolved on the Great Plains, because they have this evolutionary relationship, it's like core to understand what those relationships are. So whether you're a buffalo operation or whether you're a cattle operation, you'll understand what the impacts of the grazing are so then you can manage them to sustain healthier ecosystems because in the end, that's what regenerative grazing is, is where you're utilizing a place, you're making animals graze it like more uniformly where they're not so selective and then moving them on to uh, a different pasture. And so historically, that's what bison would do. They would go to these areas, hit them hard, and you read these journals of um, explorers where they're like, where the buffalo were, it was so degraded and so grazed down. And then, then they would go back to these places two, three years later, and these places were so washed. So it was about the impact, but it was about letting that land have that rest as well. And so taking that into consideration, that's really about, you know, looking at how we today can take those lessons and write them into management plans for specifically for me right now, it's for my tribal ranchers and my tribal producers. You mentioned earlier that there are certain tribes where buffalo were more central than others. How how broad an area would you consider buffalo country um, back in the day, several hundred years ago? How far how far east would would they have been significant? You know, there's different um, species of buffalo bison. You have your woods bison, and you have your plains bison. And so on maps that I've seen for just the continent today from Alaska all the way down to Mexico, you've seen them all throughout there in really far west and east. Um, and so I can't give a specific area of like, you know, this is specifically where they were in these states. But what you come to understand is if when you look at these these like grasslands or the, you know, the grasslands in these different states and the tall grasses, the mid grass prairie and the short grass prairie, you start to understand where they were based on the, where the forage availability or where their food was based on what they would graze versus uh, that would be more plains bison versus woodland bison, they would be kind of more up in your foothills, your mountainous areas and things of that 
type of habitat. And so it's, it, you know, it's really hard to speak on specific locations because when you have to look at the t different species of bison historically. Mm -hmm. So I would guess then that it would seem to me you would see more of the woodland kind of bison, say, east of the Mississippi River, Illinois and Ohio. And uh, and you would start seeing more of what I think of kind of the prairies uh, would be the Dakotas and Montana down through Nebraska and Kansas, Colorado. And, you know, to this day, when I fly over that country and look out the plane window, I can kind of conjure up an image of what it would have looked like to have all of those uh, bison just just moving through through that area. And to this day, I look down there and think, what can be a better use of much of this land? Now, some of it's getting good use with, you know, they're growing wheat there now in some areas. But there's a lot of it, too, that uh, you can't help but look at it and wonder if bison wouldn't improve. The, the that that land if they were able to be free ranging and um the, the waste goes into the soil and like you were describing that they they eat it down to a certain level and then they know to move and it looks like it was just really mowed close you know and and then but you it comes back and it got a treatment from from the buffalo it, it, it's a it's a beautiful thing it seems like latrice you know, it is. And, and when working with tribal producers who, you know, are operating specifically cattle, you know, we we have to take these teachings, especially these cultural teachings, you know, and really integrate them. And I like to call this cultural science because we're using the science that's based in, in our culture and, you know, in our ways of doing in our ways of knowing the natural systems. And so going back to those is really important when you're trying to manage the land today for the for the animals that are on it today. So you have to understand how it was used historically and how it evolved. So that way, when you're making recommendations for ranchers today, you're not just, you know, blowing hot air. You're 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 relating it back to the land and you're relating it back to the relationship because Ultimately, you know, having the background that I do coming, you know, from a long line of advocates for the land and being land stewards, you know, it's it's that responsibility that's passed on by, you know, each generation. So each generation understands you have to care for that land because it's land that you're passing down to the next generation. And so when I start hearing this term, regenerative agriculture, regenerative grazing, you know, it, it gives me hope because it's like regen, like the next generation. And, you sure. know, because that's the focus is you're, you're making that land to sustain itself, to help it sustain itself, to keep those ecological services intact and help improve those ecological services so the land can care for for future generations to come. So when I hear you say that, it just reminds me that there's such lessons to be learned. You know, when you're talking about uh, these, you know, sustainable regenerative production practices and so forth, that even on the reservation where you have people that are raising cattle currently, 
and look to the old ways of looking what it was uh, like when bison were on the land and and have still have pertinent lessons you know you know for how they how they should be ranching uh i think that's fascinating thank you you know i i was raised um on my family ranch like i said and so growing up my dad took me all over riding horseback and so even though we were on a cattle ranch we would go and find buffalo drive lines. We would go and find teepee rings and we would find buffalo skulls. So that cultural identity has always been tied to the land where we live. And so for me, it, it gave me that greater meaning of what I can do to help protect it and keep keep it um, productive and going for my kids and their kids and and so on so if you ranch on the reservation do you actually have title to a set amount of land or is it like a public grazing arrangement so it depends if you have like your private property or if you're going to lease land um trust land from the Bureau of Indian Affairs. And what that means is this, that the Bureau of Indian Affairs will oversee the lease payments held by individual landowners. You have those leases. Then you also have leases through um, tribally owned lands. And then you can also have uh, lands that you lease that are fee that um, have taxes paid on them that could be owned by either the tribe or non-members um so there's different like governmental or uh organizations or jurisdiction if you want um that oversee the land's use or you know that have the ownership to the land so in a lot of ways it's kind of messy <laughs> not messy i shouldn't say messy it's just there's a lot that goes into being an operator in, in Indian country. Mm, sounds like water laws. <laughs> but you know that that um, image of, um, say, going to cattle ranching. So if you live in the area, maybe you're even leasing land from, from the tribe directly and you're, you're running cattle. Can you shift that easily? Can you say, I want to go to Bison? So you may right now be Herefords and and start switching over and to to run Bison on that land instead of Herefords or Angus. Yeah, and I guess that that is just up to the preference of the rancher. I know more and more are getting curious about, you know, that type of management, but then there's still a lot who are, you know, 100% cattle operators. And so, you know, I think it's just where they want to go with the land more so than, you know, pushing or seeing the changes. It's just really up to the operator and how they want to manage their land with the animals. Uh, some years ago, I helped develop a strategic plan with uh, some people that were up in that country that wanted to produce bison and market bison. And they some of them have successfully, you know, marketed bison. But I remember at the time, 
it kind of reminded me of organic transitions uh, right now because there were people that are um, say have conventional agriculture and now even the USDA and some of the state departments of agriculture are giving incentives and helping people in a transition stage to transition to organic and I think back about that the people that were trying to transition if you will from these uh, English bred uh, livestock and English heritage, like the Herefords and and the Angus, and even some of the some of the other European stock, the Kianinas and Charleys and and so forth, that uh, to transition when they started looking at at bison, the big thing was they're not exactly the same. They're they don't respect fencing, you know, <laughs> like, like, <laughs> and and if you're gonna um, if you think you can just start raising buffalo the same way that you did herefords you might find your fencing's not nearly enough because if they decide to go somewhere they just flat go (laughs) (laughs) they do i would suspect that bison withstand predators better than other than cattle do would that be true or bear and lions and coyotes and so forth and wolves you know i think Yes, in many ways, because they have to be more alert because they're not as protected as like they still have those natural instincts because, you know, they they it ha- they haven't been so domesticated to where those are no longer inherently there. And so they do better on predation because I feel like they they're, you know, they're still so, such a wild animal that naturally they just have that instinct. Even when I'm around them, I notice they're more alert when I'm around them versus when I'm around my cattle. My cattle are just like, oh, there she is, and just let me walk by, but the buffalo will watch me when I'm around Mm -hmm. them. The people that are raising bison, how do they feel about claims they can make as far as the healthfulness of eating buffalo meat or bison versus regular beef? You know, I think it really just depends on what their diets are. Like, if you have naturally grass-fed cattle, the meat's going to be really good quality. But the way that bison graze and break down the plants is, I think, the meat quality, the, the protein, the iron, and everything is a lot higher in buffalo meat and i think that has to do with the evolutionary process and how they you know graze the plants historically and so their bodies know how to break down those plants a lot differently and so the nutrient content of the bison you know naturally be higher um unless you know cattle are managed and supplemented then that's you know another way where it could be similar but not quite naturally the same based on their grazing habits you know it's interesting to me too how um when people are so critical now of many people are critical of of meat consumption and saying that you know the they have fault with beef animals and yet uh, bison are ruminants as well and we had now, I have read before that it was as high as 65 million head 
of bison on North America. Does that sound anywhere close to the right number? You know, I've heard so many varying numbers that I know that they were in the millions, you sure. know, and our people, when they explained the animals, they, we have, you know, words for numbers, but they would talk about, you know, this is more of the female herd. This is the bull herd. This is the younger cow herd. So they understood how the herds broke up and knowing that their, they, their behaviors were a little different depending on the age and, and the sex of, of, of the, of the herds. And so that was always in consideration. So you always knew you, there was these different group are these herd makeups within mm -hmm. these the bigger populations of, of the buffalo mm -hmm. or you know as our tribe calls them any any mm-hmm well you know they're ruminant animals and so when they grazed uh sensibly they produce methane as well so cattle the issue with cattle because they are chewing up and the cellulose materials that we can't consume they're out there on on the range and they're eating things that humans aren't able to eat but if it's if it's a ruminant animal can digest it the only downside is that they burp uh and it produces methane which is contributing to greenhouse gases but when we had 65 million head if i accept the number that i've seen often that were ranging across the country we didn't have anybody talking about climate change and it really wasn't happening at that time so it's all these other things we've added seven billion people and all of the cement and transportation and the other things and now going back and pointing fingers at ruminants like the cattle or or bison seems like there could be more productive ways to point your attention i do too and i think one of the things is just the law like I think today what's happened in society is so many people are disconnected from the land and when you're disconnected from the land you don't have the same views that you would if you had the relationship if you were working the land with the cattle or the buffalo um because I think a lot of those decisions are from the disconnect and and you have these larger cities where there's more population and they're highly congregated and you know and they're and they're making these you know the like rhetoric towards producers and at times it's like they're the ones who are you know still trying to manage the land in ways that foster these relationships so i guess for me it's it's really hard to you know say like they are because if you look at the ecological benefits of grazing and, and proper grazing management the plants can uptake a lot of carbon and put that back into the soil into the uh, carbon sink and so i feel like what's happening is everybody's trying to point fingers on what is causing all these issues but 
as a society, we have to really understand what our contributions are to this crisis. And I had a really good friend. His name is Jerry. And he said something that was very impactful. He said, we are so used to convenience. We are so used to having all of our needs met that we have to get comfortable with being uncomfortable. And, and I was like, what do you mean by that? He's like, well, I mean, when you're hot, you can't, you, you shouldn't just go turn on your air conditioner because, you know, that's creating, you know, energy waste and to cool you off are when you're hot, you know, you're turning on that thermostat when historically, you know, we would, you know, build fire and, and so you didn't have so much of this pollution. And so for me, it, it, it made me realize like, you know, as a society, we got to really look at within ourselves of what we can do to change how we are projecting what the real issues are when it comes to climate change. Oh, that's wise. Uh, and that makes me wonder about all the wisdom that exists there, you know, from your perspective and the, uh, the Blackfeet reservation in Montana and, and, um, uh, I wonder if you've got a Wendell Berry, you know, uh, uh, I think of uh, Wendell Berry, who I just saw not too long ago, uh, down in Lexington, Kentucky, and and I've been rereading uh, some of his some of his works. And uh, you know, from his perspective, he writes he writes very very powerfully, but he can relate to um, Amish farmers. Uh, you know, he talks about the story about what the, you know the Amish farmers and others, and compares it to modern agriculture. I, I'm wondering who's the Wendell Berry of Native Americans. You, you probably have more than one, but any that have, even if they haven't written 50 books like Wendell Berry has, but uh, who do you look to for, for wisdom uh, within the tribal communities that, that, you know, speak of all those lessons so well that connect us with how we grow our food and what we eat. And, you know, for me, I go back to my elders who are connected through ceremony to the land because those lessons and those teachings of, of our relationships are so tightly ingrained to how we practice our, our religion that I, I go back to them because those items, those stories go back generations, mm -hmm. so many generations back. Because our stories and the way that we sh um, share information is orally. And so it's that transfer of knowledge through story. It's that transfer of knowledge. And so for me... I always go back to my elders when I really want to know something because, you know, they're the ones who were taught by the elders before them, you know? And so I go back to them when I'm pondering something in the Western science realm. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And I'll go back to them with the, with this Western science question. And whether I'm talking to my father who has this elder knowledge or to great aunts and uncles, it's, it's the, it's that generational knowledge that you get when you're seeking those answers. And so for me, it puts it into perspective where I have the viewpoints in, in my culture, my cultural views. And then I have the views in, in the Western views. And so it gives me a way to look at things and two lenses and so for me that allows me to really find what I define as like a a, like a not so much a middle ground but coming to a greater understanding of of our systems or questions I may have or anything of that nature well that's wonderful but for those of us that don't have your elders, uh, uh, you know, I can't go on Amazon or to my favorite uh, independent bookstore and say, you know, I want to um, I want to get the wisdom of Latrice's elders. And uh, it's too late for me to become a member of the Blackfeet tribe. Yeah, so I I do a lot of reading of um, Leroy Little Bear up in Canada, the University of Lethbridge, Beverly Hungry Wolf. Um, she's another researcher up in Canada, Pauletta Fox. She, um, I read her uh, dissertations. And so I guess I just find research that was done by tribal individuals because whether you're looking at their academics um publications they always go back to the teachings of of their cultural background and so even when i was doing my thesis i rooted it back into my my background within what i was trying to study was looking at the relationship of soil health and and any bison and and cattle and trying to understand those systems And so for me, it's just really looking more into indigenous researchers who are at universities and are, you know, for me, that's my source of gaining more knowledge, too, is looking at the research that's being done by indigenous people. Well, Latrice, I really want to thank you for joining me on Farm to Table Talk, because I think for a verbal tradition, we are we are trying to keep it going here verbally and i was thinking as you were describing that and that uh, need to have a podcast to feature elders um, you do because you know, the- they're less of the facebook generation and instagram and tiktok and uh, all of those and and perhaps uh more appropriate for podcasts so anytime you see some elders that we should Try to get them some wisdom, and you can get them to agree to talk with me. We'll do a podcast with them. Oh, Roger, I will definitely keep that in mind. And I know there's so many great people who love to share and talk about our our ways of doing and our teachings. That you know, it. it what I always say is there. There's an enrichment 
when you have different backgrounds and in our culture, we have a medicine wheel and it's broke down into four colors and those four quadrants and there's the color white, the color yellow, the color red and the color black. And what's that? What that does is it represents all the people of this world of and who are on this world. And that's what those colors represent. And so for us, we always understand the value of of diversity. We understand the value of of, you know, generations. We understand the importance of carrying things on and that we are all tied to the land. Whether we forget those relationships, we can always go back to what our relationship was historically with the land, whether it was with this continent or not. You, you're always able to go back to what your histories were based on your culture and where you come from. But those are inspiring words, and I'm glad to hear you say them, and I'm sure that people will look forward to meeting you at Eco Farm and share some of that wisdom. Thank you, and I want to share with you that my Indian name from my tribe is Aniskamaki, and it means Buffalo Stone Woman. I always say Latrice Tatsi is my government name. say your say your indian name again aniskamaki it means buffalo stone woman oh what a wonderful name you have i'm glad you shared that you've been listening to farm to table talk with your host roger wasson 